Hello, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the feminist podcast that knows that just because it's back to school season doesn't mean we should be going back to school. Today we have Kellen, Zoe, Bianca, and Julia. And today we're going to be talking about COVID-19 and the university. There's so much to talk about here. Um, As y'all have probably seen, colleges across the country have brought students back to campus already with predictably disastrous results. Um, So we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about what's going on with online and hybrid and in-person teaching decisions, why they were made, how students and workers are organizing for their safety, because it's clear the university doesn't actually care about that. Um, We're also, I think, going to be talking about the situation for precarious academics right now, um, because as is the case for millions of Americans, the pandemic has made their, our already tenuous relationship with job security even more unstable. So, you know, the TLDR version of all of this is that colleges and universities exploit their workers and care only as much about student and worker safety as they absolutely have to. But you all probably could have guessed as much, and we're going to dive into that. So... We have two amazing guests with us today, um, both of whom work at universities and both of whom have a lot to say about these topics. So uh, why don't y'all introduce yourselves, maybe starting with Liz? Sure. So I'm Liz Poultra. I'm a postdoc um, at the University of Pennsylvania, and I have a PhD in English from Northeastern University, where I helped organize a graduate student union And in the context of this conversation, I'll share that I've been working in academia for 10 years professionally, both as a graduate student employee of a university, as an adjunct at two different community colleges, and also as a contingent researcher on various fellowships, which is what I'm doing now. And I'm glad to be here. Yay, welcome. Welcome. Okay, I think that's my turn. Um, I'm, I'm Jen, uh, Jennifer Standish. I'm a graduate uh, student in history at uh, UNC in Chapel Hill. Um, and for the past four months, I have been organizing with other graduate students um, and also in solidarity and with staff and undergraduate students against the university's plan to reopen uh, its campus this fall. Um, but For the past four years that I have been a graduate student at UNC, um, there's been a lot of terrible uh, things that UNC has done. And so I've been involved in other um, labor and anti-racist organizing efforts uh, there. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. It's awesome to have y'all both um, to do a little pitch for Season of the Bitch. We did have an episode about the Silent Sam Monument, which is a Confederate monument at UNC Chapel Hill, um, and some of the labor and anti-racist organizing that's been going on there. Highly recommend um, not to toot our own horn here. But yeah, we I, would never do that. We would literally never. <laughs> <laughs> Could not be us. Um I thought it would be good to start by just establishing the sort of general chaos that has been the opening of universities. I'm really excited, Jen, to hear your take on what has been happening in the last literal like 24 hours <laughs> at Chapel Hill. Um, I so I'm a I'm a grad student slash worker at Columbia University, which was is basically now having all undergrad um, classes online. 
it was a clusterfuck this this summer. They didn't tell us what was happening. Then they told us in August that they were going to let 60% of undergrads back on campus and, you know, try to have some classes with online components, but most classes with in-person components, but leave it up to the professors and the instructors what was going to happen. Um, and so every department was like, okay, cool. Guess we're going to offer our classes online then so we don't die. Um, except for economics, because apparently they have a different risk analysis metric than the rest of us. Um, and then the university sent oh out this, God. yeah, it's just classic econ, sent out this batshit email um, being like, um, okay, professors and instructors, it's your fault that freshman year is going to be terrible for all of these kids. I hope you feel bad about your choices. Trying to guilt us into changing our decisions. I say us as though I'm a professor. I'm not. Um, but the instructors got it as well. And then two weeks later, on like August 13th, three weeks before school was supposed to start, they sent out another email being like, just kidding, nobody's coming back to campus. Undergrad education is entirely online. Thank you, everybody, for giving us your tuition dollars. Please cancel your flights to New York. Hope they refund you. And that's kind of the story of what Columbia has been like. Yeah, my school has done something somewhat similar to that. Um, luckily for me, my program decided really early on in the summer um, they were like, we are staying fully remote. We don't know what the school's doing, but we're going to be remote. So like, I've known that for me for a while, which has been nice, but it was like the rest of the school and programs were up in the air. Um, so there, then all of the grad school programs decided to remain online and there was going to be some undergraduate stuff in person. I'm not really sure of the percentage, but then they sent on an email last week saying like, oh, we realized that offering undergraduate housing is a really bad idea. So actually we're not offering housing and we'll be offering classes mostly online. Um, I could not figure out like what that means. I was looking, cause I didn't actually read all the emails cause they didn't apply to me. But for this episode, I was like, I'm going to try to backtrack. So I was going through the emails and like none of them have a clear description of what's happening. There's like this part of the website dedicated just to like what's happening with COVID. And there's still like, it's all just like talking around it of like, we are analysis, analysis, analysis. <laughs> analyzing <laughs> the risk and like safety and blah, blah, blah. But like nothing just says like what they are doing. So anyway, that's been what's happening there. So I'm curious I know, I mean, probably everyone has heard some stuff about UNC, but for both of y'all, what's happening with your schools? Yeah, um, I mean, I can try to, like, synthesize the chaos <laughs> that has been UNC's, like, reopening. Um, so, I guess just yesterday, I, like, can't even keep track of the days anymore, um, just because everything feels very chaotic, but um, yesterday... They finally decided after having student, students on campus for about a week in the dorms that campus would be, um, that classes are going to be remote. But on August 3rd, um, undergraduate students did move, move into the dorms and the plan all along was for as many undergraduate students who wanted to, to move into the dorms. I understand that um, the university claims they're at 60% capacity of students in the dorms, but I know that some dorms have almost 80% capacity. So since move-in in early August, and that includes move-in in the dorms, but also students coming back to Chapel Hill, um, it's just been kind of the predictable, like exactly what everyone said would happen. <laughs> A lot of students um, 
you know, hanging out in groups, attending different parties across at UNC in the triangle. Um, and by the end of the first week, there were 146 confirmed COVID cases wow. in the dorms. Um, in the dorms and at different fraternities. And I also know, I mean, we're following like Reddit and Twitter and things, and there are just so many other clusters that they're like not even counting now. Um, and so, yeah, that's where we're at. Uh, the university is now doing classes online. They're hoping that students, quote unquote, de-densify on their own, wow. basically that they move out because they're too scared to live in the dorms. Um, but the university hasn't yet decided to have students go back or anything else. So that's just kind of where we're at. Um, we're still technically in the middle of the semester. They haven't given us a break despite this turn to online learning. And so a lot of instructors are really just scrambling to, to not only figure out how to adjust their courses, but also to like support students who are testing for COVID, who are scared to be living in their dorms, who have no time or capacity to do any kind of coursework. And so um, as you can imagine, it's just like chaos here. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I have a question actually uh, for Jen. When you said like the triangle and people going there, does that mean like different schools? What is that referring to? Yeah, so we have NC State really close in Raleigh. Um, there's Duke, which has yet to open. Um, so yeah, other schools in the area. And oh because everything's so close, students, yeah, can go. And I also like really want to be clear um, that insane that students are doing this. Like I do not, the blame is not on the students. Um, this was exactly what was going to happen. Um, and the blame falls entirely on the university for creating a structure and a plan in which this was possible. Absolutely. Yeah, Liz, what, what's going on at Penn? Yeah, I think Penn basically made the decision a couple weeks ago that they didn't want to be the UNC. Like, I think they saw <laughs> the UNC gradually happening. Um, and by the way, I, I also have been thinking about UNC before I talk about Penn. Did you all see on Twitter <clears throat> that image of like the meal that they're giving yeah. the COVID, right? I, like it's that that like stuck with me because it, it looked like something that you get maybe like in prison or and it also reminded me of like the fire festival that's what yeah. i haven't even i have not seen this <laughs> post but i was just imagining the fire festival thing yeah i feel like you unc is like the fire festival of university <laughs> it's literally like like two cans of like um to go campbell soup a bag of edamame some nuts and three bottles of water and they do that drop off one time a day that's insane yeah and so this that's is the for like the, meal plan or whatever yeah. this is for the oh, covid okay. patients this is for the people who are in the quarantine dorms they're giving them like some peanuts and some tomatoes <laughs> um so i i don't know that just i found that really striking um but no pin basically decided initially they had said that it was going to be like some face-to-face -face classes and then a couple weeks ago they were like uh never mind we're not doing that 
Um, and the reason why they made that decision is because there's been tons of political pressure by organizers in West Philly mm -hmm. on the university, and including the, uh, I think it's called for a police free pen or like basically like the, the abolitionist organizers who've been organizing to defund the Penn police department and get them sort of out of West Philly. Um, and they haven't, they released an awesome list of demands in June. Um, but yeah, I think that it was really like the community pressure in, in my neighborhood of West Philly that, that led to this decision being made. I don't think it was like administrators decided that they were going to be benevolent and make the decision that is clearly the right decision, which is to, to not bring students to campus. Also, one other thing I'll say is just living in West Philly, um, I think it was at the beginning of August, I saw tons of students moving in because I live like a 30 minute walk from campus. Um, and so there was like, like right at the beginning of the month, I saw all of these U-Hauls and like students with their parents, like all of these students are moving into West Philly. Um, so even though PIN is going to be online and they're telling students to only come to campus in like extreme circumstances, um, there still are, there were still were people moving into, into the neighborhood and, and affecting the, the community here. Wow. Yeah, I think it's really interesting hearing kind of y'all's um, experiences and like the process of the university and kind of making these decisions. So UNC is a public university. Um, and so a lot of what, a lot of the messaging from faculty, from department chairs, from deans, basically everyone who has power but isn't willing to recognize that they do, is that um, like we just have to make the board of governors happy and the legislatures happy. And they were clearly doing everything in their power to make it possible for students to come to campus, pay for their housing contracts, pay for tuition. And then and once it was impossible for them to apply for refunds, you know, it didn't matter if they went back or not. Yeah. Um, there was a board of governor meeting where they had a special vote such that tuition wouldn't be adjusted or reduced based on campus going online. So I think they even anticipated that everything would be forced to go online, but everything was coordinated such that students would pay. And I, so, you know, we've done, there's been a lot of organizing on campus, off campus by uh, housekeepers and groundskeepers have been a, a group that's done a lot of organizing, graduate students um, through the uh, Anti-Racist Graduate Worker Collective, um, which I'm a part of, and um, a lot of undergraduates in groups like Black Congress, um, just undergraduates as individuals, and um, this undergraduate student group called um, the Commission for Campus Equality and Student Equity. And they've, so there have been myriad demands um, and also like their own roadmaps of like, okay, don't reopen campus. Here's what we need. We need internet access. We need housing for students who don't have access to safe housing when, if campus, if they, if campus doesn't reopen. Um, here's how you can redistribute the endowment and redistribute, um, you know, administrative and faculty salaries to make sure that there are no furloughs of staff or graduate students or what have you. Um, 
you know, a, a ton of different points of pressure. The Orange County Health Department, um, which is UNC Chapel Hill is within Orange County, actually issued a statement to UNC saying that they do not recommend having campus be open and recommend that they wait at least five weeks and then reassess before bringing students back to campus. That was hidden from the public for a week. Mm -hmm. So there's just been all these points of pressure. And I think that, I mean, there's a, a climate of kind of inaction and fear at UNC just in terms of literally everything um, from, you know, police violence to Confederate monuments on campus to this pandemic. Um, and also there's this very real kind of reality that people are very scared that the university is going to get defunded and shut down if we do anything to upset the Board of Governors legislature. So I, full disclosure, I'm from North Carolina originally. Part of, I try to keep up with what's going on at Chapel Hill because I, it's like the flagship university for where I grew up. I had a ton of friends who went there, I have friends in grad school there. And if you pay attention to North Carolina politics, you know that the Board of Governors of Chapel Hill, uh, well, the UNC system is like this deeply partisan, deeply political group that is tied to the state government. And so it's this it's this very conservative body um, that is not just conservative, but like deeply reactionary. And so that is also like part of what's tied up in the opening in, um, you know, the Confederate monuments issues, the, the police violence issue, um, the whites, the issue with like white supremacists that keep coming to campus and nothing happens. It's a it's a real mess. Um, we could go into that like even deeper uh, if we if we had the time. One thing that that I was that I saw on Twitter that I was thinking about as you were talking, Jen, is apparently, and so you would know better than I would, but I saw a UNC student tweet that the um, announcement that the school was going online for the year went out at three forty-five, I guess, yesterday on Monday, and that I saw the, this too. Yeah, the the deadline to apply for tuition refund was five p.m yesterday, Monday. So students mm -hmm. had an hour and 45 minutes to act on that and demand their money back. Yeah. And, and I mean, like, that's just such a, I think some people might be like, well, it's an easy decision. You know, of course you should have thought of that, but wrapped up in this decision is, you know, whether or not students can live on campus or have safe housing, whether or not they can mm -hmm. have safe access to a meal plan you know, whether or not they can um, move towards their degree, which is also wrapped into financial aid. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, they've really just literally tricked students into, I don't want to say trick because I think everyone knew what was happening, but they've cornered students into having to make a decision um, that is extremely inhumane and unethical. Yeah, it's also like, I don't know, remember being 18? <laughs> like yeah. your brain's not fully formed. You like literally can't make major decisions. And plus like, okay, you have an hour then to decide if you're gonna go home and potentially like endanger your family. If you have somewhere to like go home to, are you then going to like yeah. endanger your parents or whoever you'd be like living with? Like that's a really big decision to make in one hour. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I yeah. just feel like our like higher education in the United States already 
disenfranchises 18-year-olds so much. I mean, I think about my 18-year-old self, like signing all those student loan documents for the small private liberal arts college that I went to in Oklahoma, um, which is like on the verge of bankruptcy, the University of Tulsa. Um, And I still have, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars in, in debt that I signed away at 18 like really with no idea, like at 18, I'm trying to think of what my mental capacity mm-hmm. was like to understand something like that. And I was like worried about at 18, I was worried about like the ACT, like, oh, my ACT test scores are so low. And like, mm-hmm. oh, like, am I, do I have the right outfit on? And like, is, you know, is my professor going to judge me because I said something stupid in class? Like that was my concern. I wasn't thinking about like, oh, I'm going to have like thousands of dollars of debt until I'm probably 75 years old because because of this this system and I also see it in my students and that they enter the classroom not really understanding who I am and they just see me as sort of like a blob of you know professional adult person they don't get that you know it's like I'm a postdoc I'm not a professor I'm not going to be here next year I'm how many of your professors are contingent? You probably have no idea. Do you even know what an adjunct is? Do you know the percentage of adjuncts who teach at this institution? Probably not. You know, like the, the entire education system, higher education system is like this myth and there's no transparency for students or for, for parents. You have to kind of like have an academic in the family in order to navigate it. So it's like, this is just, you know, this is just like one branch of this like giant horrific tree to use like a weird metaphor as an English PhD. (laughs) Um, It's just like this, you know, all of this that's happening, you know, it's not new. It's not really that surprising, um, but that doesn't make it any less upsetting. Yeah, Uh, I guess we've already kind of talked about this next segment, Um, but I kind of, we kind of wanted to discuss like what the motivations of the universities are for doing what they're doing. Um, I feel like my take on this is, and I feel like most others here as well, is that the obvious choice in the name of public health was to have the school year take place entirely online. And we've already kind of discussed this, but that decision itself also presents its own challenges because then schools have to take into account students who don't have internet access or strong internet access to be able to attend their remote lectures or classes They have to take into account students whose home environments might not be entirely stable, students who are going to be attending a live class from a time zone that's like 12 hours apart from their university, just like other challenges surrounding that. And so I would have expected schools, especially those with like ample financial resources to address those challenges by basically providing whatever accommodation students needed to learn as best as they can in these extremely troubling times, whether that means providing students with learning environment, like literally a different place to live that is safe, as in like safe from the pandemic, but also safe from a mental perspective as well. Um, Or providing students with whatever tools they need to facilitate their learning, or just not mandating live attendance and instead recording classes for students who are affected by time zone differences. I know there are some universities where like classes or professors are mandating that students attend a live lecture and 
uh, like students who live like, I don't know, like several time zones away have to wake up at like 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. for their class and then attendance is part of their grade and everything else that's going on just makes it such a uh, basically impossible challenge. Um, but it seems like universities aren't doing any of those things. Um, and we're seeing, I, I feel like we're kind of seeing the results of that already. Um, like schools that are either entirely or partially remote are kind of just largely assuming that remote education is a feasibility for everyone. Um, just from a personal perspective, I'm not currently in school, but my sister is. And her university is kind of doing this like partial remote, partial in-person kind of arrangement where like most classes are online, but certain departments, like I think the visual arts and performing arts departments are mandating like in-person classes. Before her classes, which are going to be all remote, they didn't uh, really even reach out to her or anybody else that I'm aware of to ask like, oh, like, do you need special accommodations to be able to attend classes? Like that was just a given that they were, which is obviously not the case. Um, and for schools that have already reopened, as we've already discussed, there have been like big spikes in COVID cases. And also like we've discussed, there are a lot of students whose schools have reopened who have like deferred attendance for a year and have had to make that decision very hastily because it is, because um, as you were saying, Jen, the university basically cornered them into making that decision hastily. So my question, I guess, for all of you is like, why do you think universities are doing what they're doing, which seemed really out of touch with their student bodies and frankly, the state of the world? And who do you think is most impacted by decisions regarding reopening? I think universities are doing what they're doing because they haven't been held accountable by most university workers. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they have been held accountable by graduate student workers in the COLA movements and in other organizing campaigns, like the one I mentioned earlier, the police free pin movement. Um, but I think a lot of tenured faculty and full-time faculty members are sort of trained, you know, they're trained to do a very specific type of engagement with their workplaces, which is an individualist engagement. Um, they're not trained as organizers. They're not trained to talk to anyone who doesn't think exactly like them. Um, and obviously this has repercussions for research when you see like academics from a specific discipline who absolutely cannot talk to anyone or give <laughs> feedback or read research from another discipline. But then it also has repercussions for labor organizing um, and I think, you know, I, you see a lot of this discussion on Twitter about like, why is this happening? And like, it's so horrible. And I think as a graduate student organizer, I'm like, yeah, this has actually been happening for a long time. You just haven't really seen it. And appealing to administrators and to appealing to administrators sense of propriety and benevolence or whatever, it, it actually doesn't work. The only thing that works is, um, bottom up organizing. And I think that part of the problem is that tenured faculty think they have no power and they think that they're sort of just stuck in an individualist model. And so when we're in a crisis, like we are now, things are just sort of stagnant, everybody's panicking and they don't really have a, a, a plan in place to, to figure out like, well, what do we do? Like, who are my people that I can talk to, to like figure out like some kind of mutual aid system or like, you know, um, figure out what, how to change, make structural change in my workplace. They have absolutely no skill sets in that. And I find that both 
infuriating and also really sad. Um, so yeah, that's <laughs> not to get not to get too much of my grad student organizer soapbox, but I basically I think that we're going to continue to see crises in higher education until tenured faculty learn how to organize. Well said. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. I, I was just saying well said. That's all. Please go ahead. Seriously, well said. I mean, there's so many things that I want to follow up on kind of both Bianca and Liz's points. I think um, just this has been happening like for a long time, both in terms of like how for how long the university has been operating under this myth of scarcity and austerity. Um, you know, UNC has a $6.5 billion endowment and that's not even like that big compared to a lot of places. Yet they're furloughing workers. They're forcing people in the name of like financial security to come work on a campus that is literally unsafe. Um, you know, and so like, why is this happening? Well, it's been happening for a while and literally since the university's like creation, like this notion of um, universities are like really um, colonial kind of institutions meant to, to um, categorize what knowledge is real and valuable and what isn't um, when really it's, it's the knowledge creation is often like in service of perpetuating um, who is in power. Um, white settlers uh, tends to be the case, especially in the US. Um, now I'm going on a soapbox, but- um, what we're here for. This is literally just, <laughs> okay. just a soapbox of a podcast, so please. I, I really appreciate it. I need this outlet. Um, no, but, but um, yeah, so again, like echoing, like this has been a long time coming. And I think for many of us who, you know, I came to college not being um, around a ton of people who had access to academia and like that understanding, um, just being like, this is the place where good people like learn and teach. Um, and then you kind of slowly learn that it is like very often in service of those in power, but a lot of people, you know, enter this academic space, this workplace, this learning space, like recognizing um, and knowing for a long time that it's um, it's this kind of uh, institution that like really serves um, the state and serves um, uh, white supremacy and colonialism. And so I, I really appreciated what Liz was saying about like, there are a lot of people, especially tenured faculty who are like scrambling right now. Like this isn't what they have recognized because for them, this space of the university has been, has only, you know, it may have been difficult and sometimes, but it has really served them and also been, been a place to them where they thought that they could do good or help people. Um, and I think like there's just um, cognitive dissonance. There's lack of organizing skills, as Liz points out, like people who haven't had to organize in the way that graduate students, with that housekeepers, and the way that marginalized undergraduate students have had to organize for their safety on campuses, don't have the skills they to respond to this moment. Um, and then also, I think like people are just clinging to the resources that they have in this moment 
in which like the future of the United States is not clear. Um, and so we, we wrote an op-ed, um, we the Anti-Racist Grad Collective wrote an op-ed calling on white tenured faculty to strike um, in this moment so that UNC doesn't reopen. And the responses we've gotten, there are a few like good tenured faculty who are like always on the side, always on our side. And by a few, I mean literally like maybe three. Um, and like down to do whatever, but the majority have just like come at us with like, you don't understand the precarity of faculty, despite the fact they make a median wage of 154K. And that's like median. Um, you know, they tell us that they exercise the power that they have as tenured faculty to tell us that they don't have power as tenured faculty. To <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and so, and, and to Bianca's question, like who is hurt the most? Um, the people who have been doing the most work and who have known that this was going to happen for a long time. Um, it tends to be graduate students, low paid campus workers, um, undergraduates and especially um, BIPOC undergraduates, um, working class undergraduates. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I think like you're really getting at a good point, Liz, that like we need a, maybe I'm, I, I don't wanna like speak for you or um, misinterpret what you're saying, but like tenured faculty need to like get on this like class consciousness train. Um, <laughs> if like anything, if anything is gonna happen um, and like it's, I'm wary that it's possible. Um, with what I've seen in this like literal pandemic, like an economic recession, like how worse can it get? Yeah. Yeah. I'm also curious um, just to expand a little bit on the issues that students and workers are facing because I feel like there are so many issues right now. Um, and a lot of them are way bigger than one institution. And I feel like my sense of a lot of what's happening um, at my partner's grad school, kind of like you were both mentioning, Helen and Zoe, is just that it's kind of a mess. Like they keep changing the plan and sending out all these contradictory emails and it's like really hard to keep track of. Um, I feel like obviously these institutions do not have students or workers best interests at heart. Like that feels pretty obvious to anyone who has experienced higher education. Um, but then on top of that, I feel like a lot of this is just like incompetence at how to deal with this like totally unprecedented thing. Um, I think, I mean, to me, it really shows why we should not just have like one school president or a small group of powerful people <laughs> in charge of all decision-making in a workplace because that just like obviously does not work. Um, but I guess I'm curious, like, first of all, what do you feel like the bigger issues are that might be like one institution can't necessarily change this in the moment, but then at the same time, like, what are some things that you feel like individual institutions or departments could and should be doing to support students and teachers? I mean, there's a couple positive examples that we can talk about of like, people who are organizing around this, you know, cause it, like, I think in these conversations, it's really easy to get caught up in all of the issues and forget that there are a lot of people who are organizing and who are doing um, mm -hmm. good work and who are models for, for how to do that work. So like the University of Chicago faculty, did you all see this? 
um, they just organized, it, specifically the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture, they were organizing um, specifically to demand that the University of Chicago publicly recognize its debt to enslaved people and, and make moves towards reparations. And they did that specifically by making a set of demands and then strategically saying, this is the labor we will withhold if these, these demands are not met. And I think that that's an excellent model. Um, and to be really, really specific about what is it that they will not do, because this is the power that tenured faculty have and senior faculty have that I, that I don't have and that none of us on this call <laughs> have um, right. to make change at these institutions is they have the power to really withhold their labor and say like, actually, you know what? I'm not gonna sit on your diversity search committee. I'm not gonna give your like, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, month of February diversity speech to, that the university can then broadcast in their newsletters, right? Like all of those things, all that so-called diversity work that faculty are pressured to do to give the university the, the sort of public facing um, look of like inclusion or whatever, whatever we wanna call it. So I feel like the mm -hmm. thing, one, like one really good strategy is, is withholding labor and doing it really, really strategically and doing it in conversation with your peers. Um, I also wanted to mention the PIN for Pilots program um, or initiative. So, so PIN is the seventh wealthiest university in the country and Philadelphia has the highest poverty rate of the 10 largest cities in the United States. So, so PIN is this institution of enormous wealth in a, in a city that, that has extreme poverty and deep poverty. Um, and so the PIN for Pilots um, organization, they're basically organizing around the idea that PIN should make payments in lieu of taxes, that's what the pilots means, to an educational equity fund governed by the school district in the city of Philadelphia. So basically um, to make payments towards the city of Philadelphia and public schools rather than taxes, because PIN doesn't pay taxes, which means that um, the city of Philadelphia is effectively subsidizing PIN, um, which, yeah, that's like a whole other conversation. <laughs> but, that, but that specific um, organizational model and how they're organizing around this issue, and it, it's undergraduates, it's community members, it's people who work for PIN in various channels, um, collaborating together, it's city council members, uh, uh, city council member Kendra Brooks is working on this. Like that is another model of like what, what we can actually do to target these really specific institutions. Because um, like you said, Bianca, these institutions all have different issues and they're like all, um, you know, there's, you have to come about it in different ways. But yeah, that's my soapbox. That's my other soapbox is uh, withholding labor. We're all about yeah. the soapboxes today. It's wonderful. Yeah. As just like a small example of what Liz is talking about with Penn, I'm from Philly, I'm in Philly currently, but um, like, especially when I was younger. So at the end of the school year, it's just like kind of a known thing in Philly that like Penn students just leave like really nice things on the curb that they don't want anymore. So you can just oh like go God. buy Penn in like May and get like flat screen TVs and like yes. just like <laughs> all this like really nice shit that they just like leave on the sidewalk. Yes. And like considering like the neighborhood that Penn is in too, which is not like the area that I'm from, but um, is in like a really gentrified area. It's just like really wild that like 
one week of the year you can just like walk down the street in Philly and like pick up a flat screen TV. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was the same in Boston where I did my PhD. Mm -hmm. and, like basically September 1st, you know, when all the students are moving in or moving out, you could just go through the student neighborhoods and find like your whole living room collection, like a whole new bedroom yeah, set. So weird. <laughs> It is that, incredibly weird. That's such a sadly common experience because it just sounds like where I went to school. I went to school in New Haven, Connecticut. So it's like the exact same thing. Like they would put out dumpsters on the street, like giant dumpsters just to handle like when people were moving out, like stuff they just like didn't want anymore. And it was like pristine goods. And it's like, <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, but yeah, widely common experience. I think... Um this like example of literally like certain groups of people moving their like expensive things out on the curb and then other people who you know taking them in this very small amount of time like is really reflective of like just the um the wealth inequality and like resource distribution that is like so reflected in universities and also in like surrounding communities. Um, and in response to um, Julia's question, like, you know, what are like, what is like the bigger picture that is shaping this context um, is kind of one way I interpreted it. And I've just been thinking a lot about like, resource distribution and like the way that it relates to people's capacity to organize in these kinds of moments in which their lives are threatened um, in a pandemic, et cetera. And, you know, the, for example, like the capacity to strike um, or withhold your labor in like a safe way um, is really shaped by your access to healthcare. Um, it's really shaped by your financial stability. Um, a lot of, even one's capacity to like hold a rally is shaped by like the way, the how much power police in the community have. I keep going back to this like, or I keep thinking about um, just these undergraduate student groups really pushing like the importance of internet access as something that like will really shape their experience of the semester. And that also shapes, you know, people's capacity to organize in this moment. Um, political power, you know, I'm not like super, um, I, I don't think voting is like the answer. And also um, the political context really shapes um, the way that people respond to different um, organizing tactics, the way it's of course related to all of these like very material things that shape your ability to organize. Um, and then like, lastly, I think um, people's political imaginations, I think, um, I guess both like the, um, the breadth and like capacity of people's political imaginations has come out, but in, in terms of like the way that students have imagined how this semester could look and the way that um, campus workers and staff have imagined like what alternatives could be instead of campus reopening and people being furloughed. Um, but, you know, going back to faculty, I think they really just can't imagine, like, I think there's a lack of 
imagination in terms of like what we could do as a collective or like what could happen, what, what UNC could do with the resources that it has. And I think that's also tied into like, what is valued? Like, what do we see as like important? You know, I think a lot of people who have invested their life's work in the university and who also often benefit in different important and maybe some problematic ways from the university, like see it as this place that has to stay open and has to exist for like communities in North Carolina and people to be safe and like, you know, progressive politics to like still have life. Um, and like, so that, beca and because of that, because I think people aren't able to imagine outside of the university as like the progressive space, um, it, the university becomes more important than literal people's lives and people's paychecks. And it's, it feels really scary for people to like be arguing about the financial stability of the university um, when people are dying and getting COVID. Um, but I think that is like the logic and um, that's leading to that conclusion. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that another thing that's going on here is just like the neoliberalization of the university. Like I have this joke that I think about sometimes it's like, you know, many universities in the United States are really just hedge funds with an educational operation. Or in the case of Columbia, it's a real estate company with an educational operation. Uh. Yeah, it's it's but I mean, it's true, you know, and like this leads to another thing that that I wanted to talk about, which is like about ac academic workers specifically. And I'm glad that we've been talking not just about academic workers, but about workers on like staff on every level of the university. Um, but as we are the, both of our guests and then a, um, a few of us on the call are academic workers, I did want to also talk about what that sort of looks like, that that arena looks like right now. Um, and one thing that universities have been doing in the context of COVID is issuing hiring freezes. And for people who don't know why this has created such a crisis, I just wanted to explain a little bit about <laughs> the hiring world of academia, which is, it's going to feel like inside baseball, but bear with me for a second. So like, um, universities have created this glut of people who have PhDs. They bring in graduate students and use them as teaching and research labor and then hire very few people as actual professors on tenure track, which is like the place where you get job security or some form of job security. And, you know, with the neoliberalization of the university, hiring has been trending increasingly towards, not towards these stable jobs that come with like a salary and benefits, um, and like I said, a measure of job security where you're probably not going to get fired, but towards the use of adjunct faculty who are usually paid by the course, usually paid very poorly, frequently don't have access to benefits like health insurance, um, can be fired really easily. Contracts tend to be short term, can be revoked. Um, Y'all may have seen earlier this year, uh, CUNY um, this summer made big news. It's a city university of New York, um, made big news for laying off 400 adjuncts from their system. Um, and the other thing that I think is important to know for people who sort of aren't in this terrible uh, world <laughs> um, is that if you want to get hired on a sort of tenure track position eventually, you essentially have to be continuously employed in some academic capacity um, 
you know, so you have to have like a postdoc or an adjuncting job. You can't like take a year and not be involved in academia or you can just be Mayor Pete and like run for president unsuccessfully and then become a professor at Notre Dame, I guess. Like (laughs) two paths really to get into academia. But (laughs) what this means is that, right, (laughs) is that there's this like massive labor force that universities are creating to do their work for very cheap as graduate students who are then competing for fewer and fewer stable jobs and then are forced to take these other very unstable and low paying jobs in the meantime. And then meanwhile, there's a pandemic happening and schools are concerned about lost revenue and then are issuing hiring freezes, which means that there aren't even any secure jobs to compete for to the extent they exist at all. Well, um, and there are very few even of these unsecure jobs. All of this is happening. Graduate students are still graduating. And some universities, like, responding to all of this are giving graduate students an extra year of funding. They're basically saying, like, wait a second, don't graduate. Wait a year. Maybe the job market will get better. Um, My university has not done this. Columbia's response has basically been to say, sorry, that shit sucks. Um, Instead of funding you for another year, which we could totally afford to do as one of the wealthiest universities in the country, um, we're going to create a few extra contingent positions that you can apply for and compete with other Columbia students to get. You'll have less stability and worse benefits. uh, But when you spent six or seven years like I have and like other people, like literally hundreds of thousands of other people have, preparing for a job that even in good times might not exist, like, what are you supposed to do? Um, So if you're listening to this and you're like, why would anybody go into academia? This sounds like a pyramid scheme. Um, (laughs) I'm here to tell you that, yes, yes, it is a pyramid scheme. Um, Anyway, Liz, I know you've thought a lot about this situation, partly because we've talked a lot about it. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, kick us off a little bit, just talking briefly about how COVID has affected the job and life prospects of graduate and contingent academics? Yeah, so um, so basically when the pandemic hit in March, one of the first things that universities did is that they instituted hiring freezes. And there was sort of like an, a mountain of announcements from various universities saying, we are stopping hiring, like we're going to for, for all kinds of positions, not just for tenure track faculty positions, um, <clears throat> for all kinds of staff positions. And so what that means for me as someone who's contingent, who's in a part-time position, I have funding through June of this upcoming year, which means that I'm currently on the job market. Um, what that means for me is that there are fewer jobs that I can apply for. It means that I'm living a kind of double life where um, which sounds more exciting than it is. <laughs> um, what it what it means is that I am sort of like with one hand preparing with everything that I've got for the jobs that are posted and applying for everything and um, reaching out to my letter writers for support and drafting the these like enormous postdoc applications and putting a lot of work into an academic job market. And then with this other hand, the other side of my double life, I'm also sort of imagining what it would be like to leave academia. So um, I think this is a really common experience for um, senior graduate students, more graduate students who are further along in their programs, and also um, postdocs and adjuncts and junior scholars who are sort of like, always have, they always have one foot out the door. 
Um, and what that means is that it, it creates this culture of scarcity where you um, are sort of paranoid. You're always sort of like wondering, is this the last class I'll ever teach at an institution? When you receive um, praise on your research, you're always wondering like, is this, does this praise amount to anything material? Is this just, did I just get lucky? Um, and it, it creates a culture. I mean, materially, it creates a really upsetting culture um, where you, as you've really um, eloquently laid out, Kellen, like there are serious, there, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are affected by this materially, but then it also creates a culture that's psychological and emotional where it's hard to relate to senior faculty. It's hard to relate to colleagues who have full-time jobs. It's hard to relate to my students even because they don't really understand this double life that I'm, that I'm um, leading. And it's not a situation that's conducive for knowledge production, for, for teaching, for pedagogy, for like a healthy learning or research environment. So we can talk a lot about the material realities of, of these hiring freezes and the precarious state of the academic job market. But I think that an aspect of this that is under talked about is actually the emotional component and the effect that it has on contingent and precarious researchers and teachers who just always feel like, is academia gonna make a space for me? I don't know. Like, should I always have like a second thing like in my back pocket just in case? And like senior faculty will be like, yeah, have that second thing. Like, make sure you got a plan B. Um, they won't tell you what the plan B is. <laughs> <laughs> they wow. don't know, right? <laughs> Why would they know? Um, and then, and then I find myself also in the awkward position of having to advise undergraduate students who are like, who see me, and they're like, "Whoa, your class seems so cool! Like, you're doing this cool research. Like, I want to live this life too." And I'm like, "No, you don't." <laughs> right? But then, but then that's weird to be in that place too. You know, to be sitting in a chair telling someone you can't occupy this chair, right? Mm. So it's. Um, it's a really awful situation. Yeah, another thing we wanted to touch on in terms of the job market is I know in the US, especially a lot of graduates who are immigrants are having to worry about finding a job in their specific field of study so their visa doesn't expire. Um, and there was that plan that the Trump administration announced, which they later went back on, but like, who knows? Um, that basically would have deported any international students who were doing remote classes. Um, I was wondering if you guys could both talk a little bit about how these issues are impacting immigrants in the U.S. and what types of immigration issues you think we should be keeping an eye on for the upcoming school year. I think that's a really great question. Two things come to mind. One is that um, when we were organizing at UNC, really pushing hard for the university to not reopen in the fall, when the Trump administration, um, when that whole thing with international students and undocumented students came out, um, where like they weren't going to be able to get be paid, get their um, be students um, if they weren't um, in the U.S. It, we had to work really hard to articulate a solution that did not pit international students against domestic students. Um, and I think that that was 
like a really intentional tactic to divide these people who like have a lot of really similar interests and needs, but was we're now framed as like, well, you know, international students have to be on campus to um, have TA ships, to have financial aid, to actually be students. Um, but everyone else is scared that they're gonna die if they go on campus. You know, it's just like, it was this false dichotomy and so, you know, fortunately that was avoided once that was repealed, but you're right that it's still like very present and looming um, because both are like really huge, real scary issues. Um, and another thing that's happening now though, that's having like real effects and um, very few people are talking about at UNC is that international students are effectively being furloughed um, if they cannot come back to the U.S. And so they're not, a, they're not paid um, as TAs or RAs if they cannot get back to the United States. Um, and so effectively, there are international graduate students um, across the world who, don't, who have lost their, the security that um, is afforded to them by being employed by and being students of UNC. Um, and so I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it's happening like these, like it's happening both very like materially. Um, and also it's like really affecting, I think what our demands are and like what our solutions are. And I think, you know, I come from like the privilege of, of being a U.S. citizen and like not having to like worry about this, but for me and like in the organizing spaces that I have been in on campus with other graduate students. Um, we have had to like work hard to, again, like imagine and articulate these alternative solutions that don't pin um, domestic and international or undocumented students um, against each other. Um, and I'll, the university has told us like bureaucratically, you know, we just can't logistically do this. Like our hands are tied because of the way that um, students are paid or like the way that we um, accept visas or things like that. Um, and so it's a balance of like really um, working within the like very real legal structures um, that the US has like created around immigration, um, but also like, again, pushing universities to like actually to accommodate and like imagine other solutions that they I, I think can do um, in some cases. Uh, right. Yeah. I just, just to add to that. So the same thing was happening at Columbia that, um, I mean, it, it's unsurprising that the administration was telling us that they were not going to be able to pay um, international students who weren't physically in the United States. And of course, obviously it doesn't, it, if you think about it from a logical perspective, it doesn't matter where you are if your teaching is happening online. Um, and we knew that uh, other schools had figured out, and I don't know the legal mechanics behind this, but they had figured out ways that they were getting around this issue. And so one of the things that my department did, and, and credit goes to the person who, the professor who's in the direct, who's the director of graduate studies in the history department at Columbia, who understands organizing in a way that, as Liz suggested, many professors do not, um, he sort of, and I, I think that there were probably other people he was working in concert with, but I could only see what was happening in the history department. He refused to issue um, teaching assignments 
until Columbia figured out how to do what, for example, Yale was doing, which was allowing people to get paid. And we also are in a situation that's unlike UNC, where we haven't started school, we don't start school for another like two and a half weeks or so. Um, So we had that time in a way that is different than I think, you know, what's happening at Chapel Hill. Um, But we got so like, I didn't find out until literally today that I'm not TAing because this semester, because I was basically on deck to fill in if an international student who was supposed to TA couldn't TA. Um, and l- we found out today, I guess we got an email, I want to say yesterday, maybe that said that Columbia had rescinded its earlier guidance and was, um, going to be paying TAs who were working from, uh, from outside the United States. So while it may be more difficult, it is possible on an institutional level to get around that particular piece of guidance from the Trump administration. The question is like whether administrations, university administrations have the will to actually do that. And that's again, where like Jen, you are suggesting where organizing comes in and being really, really like as students who are organizing, as student workers who are organizing, being really firm on the fact that like we have solidarity with each other, regardless of like our position as citizens or non-citizens, like we're going to stand together and make sure that everybody is able to be paid. When we were organizing our grad union at Northeastern, the university really took advantage of the Trump administration's attack on international students um, in their anti-union campaign by specifically playing up the sort of idea that the union is an outside institution that's coming around, making you sign legal paperwork that could mess up your relationship with the university. Um, And they were doing this very strategically because Northeastern um, at the graduate level is mostly international students. So I think that this issue, like organizing around this issue can be really difficult because often you'll have an institution that's, that is saying two things. It'll say like, oh yes, we're here to support international students. We love international students. We'll put you on our college brochures, whatever. Um, but then they're playing like, you know, behind their back or whatever to the Trump administration and to the sort of like aggressive anti-international student, um, all the policies that have come out in the past four years. It's just been like ongoing. Um, yeah. And the other thing I was going to say about that too, is I think I saw Lisa Lowe made this point on Twitter, which is that when we talk about the attack on international students, we also have to connect the dots to what's happening with ICE and that these things are all interconnected, that it's not just like, you know, it's not just happening at universities, right? That these things are um, part of a larger system and it's been going on for years and years. And my colleagues and friends who are international students will tell me, they are experts in their own visa status. They have more knowledge than anyone else because they have to be. And every year it's like a battle to find the right funding, to get the right visa, to get the right paperwork, the the bureaucracy, to find that faculty member that you were talking about, Kellen, like find that sympathetic faculty member. It's like they, they, international students have to have a full-time job in, in, in just figuring out their ability to to study and to just like be in this country for the time of their their degree. Yeah. Yeah, I also just wanna add in talking about this stuff, I know we're like 
running up on time. Um, my one of my really good friends from undergrad, she when we were in undergrad together, she was in her late 40s. So she's now in her 50s and is in grad school. Um, and she has a partner who it she's not a US citizen, her partner is, um, but they're not married. They've been together for like 20 years. She doesn't want to be married. Um, but because of like all of these things we've been talking about when she's trying to figure out her student visa, like everyone keeps telling her like, well, you could just marry him. But like, she's like, I've been, I've been with him for 20 years. If I wanted to marry him, like I would have, I do not want to, but I think it also just really speaks to how like, even in a pandemic and even with all of these things, it's just like used to reinforce these like heteropatriarchal things of like, well, why don't you just get married and like solve all your problems? And she's like, absolutely not. I'm no, <laughs> but yeah, I just think that's like, as we were saying with like these institutions, how they're like white supremacists and bill and patriarchy and all of these things, like as is marriage. And they're just like used to support each other and like force people into situations that they don't want to be in and shouldn't be it. No one should have to make a decision. Like, am I going to stay in school or do I have to get married? Yeah. Spoken like a true master of gender. Zoe. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, I think that's such a good point. Um, is there time? To yeah, go for it. Go ahead. Um, I think that's such a good point. And I think, um, you know, the what institutions and the state and like those in power who are trying to like keep power concentrated and in their hands are try to do as I think a lot of us know, but like, I'm it's just like so becoming so apparent um, right now in this like intense time of crisis is like divide people like by um, different forms of oppression, um, gender, racial, um, immigration status. Um, and there was a, um, because there are fires everywhere now. There is um, a really important um, petition within our history department um, against white supremacy that was um, drafted by um, BIPOC graduate students and some allies um, against like a number of things that needed to be addressed in our history department. And one of the points um, among many was to not reopen campus, recognizing that um, reopening and um, COVID in general um, disproportionately affects um, Black, uh, Latino, Indigenous, um, non-white communities. And um, a lot of graduate students, um, a lot of white graduate students who um, were against the petition um, cited the international student issue as why they wouldn't sign it because they didn't want to um, make international students precarious by supporting a remote semester. I think that um, was kind of a, a cop-out in a lot of ways and kind of an excuse. Um, and also it, I just, it was, I was like witnessing the way that um, this like divide and conquer strategy works both in terms of like people who have very real fears for their needs um, that's placed in opposition to others, but also um, as like a rhetorical strategy. Um, 
And I think like this sounds like super cheesy and maybe even annoying, but just like it's just becoming increasingly clear that like what has to happen is like um, workers and students and everyone marginalized by the institutions have to like work collectively together. And in doing that, it is required that those who um, are experiencing different forms of oppression, like have the most say and shape the direction of that organizing. Um, because it's actually possible, there are solutions that like make everyone safe, um, you know, make everyone physically, emotionally safe in different ways. But, um, but the rhetoric and narrative around like these oppositional needs um, is so powerful and is like really being adopted by both like university administrators, but also even graduate students. Yeah, I think I think that's honestly it's not annoying. I think that is totally right on. I mean, that's what solidarity is all about. So I, I think actually that's a great place to end the episode. Um, there's so much we didn't get a chance to talk about during a break. Sorry to all the listeners that you didn't get a chance to hear this. We talked a little about football and the way that football is like pushing schools to stay open. I think we need to have a whole other episode about paying college like athletes, which is a whole other issue that's becoming even more pressing during COVID. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's just so much we didn't get a chance to talk about, but I'm super grateful that we had um, our two amazing guests who are on today. Thank you guys so, so much for coming on and talking to us. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. It was really nice to talk to y'all about this. Okay, that was our episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, our guests were great. That was really exciting. Um, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Season of the Bee. Visit us on our website, uh, com. Bianca just did some updates. That's very exciting. Check that out. Um, you can give us money on Patreon at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. And we have a discord for you to chat with us and a reading group that we're running right now all through Patreon. Um, also, we just got added to Spotify. So look us up on Spotify. Yeah. Very excited about that. Um, and, you know, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to us. Um, that really helps us out. And thank you so much for listening. Love you all. I love you. Love you. Love you. Bye. 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 Season of the Bitch. <laughs>